0: The text for the sermon of this afternoon is God's Word as the church is summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You find that on page 528 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 13, where the church confesses together Why is he called God's only begotten Son? Since we also are children of God. Because Christ alone is the eternal natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us body and soul from all our sins not with silver or gold but with his precious blood and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. In response to the preaching of God's word we'll sing together hymn 72 stanzas 1 through 5. Beloved Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever wondered why the authors of the Apostles' Creed chose the names and the titles that they did for our Savior? There are over 80 different titles and names that Scripture attaches to him. Yet with our Creed, we confess a mere four: Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, and our Lord. But what was it that made our fathers in the faith decide on these particular names and titles? Why did they not instead select or add son of man? That's the title our Lord used most often to describe himself throughout his ministry. Or Why not the son of David or the Lamb of God? These have a lot of rich Old Testament meaning. Well, our creed focuses on these particular four names and titles of our Redeemer for a very good reason. In the creed of the church, it is not the theologian speaking, teasing out every last fine point of doctrine. No, here with the church Catholic, the brother or sister in the pew speaks, I believe. And what you confess here are the weightiest of matters. Yes, the matters of everlasting consequence for you. So those four names and titles, those and not others, were chosen because each of those has, in particular, everlasting consequence for you who confess. Yes. Each says something unique about your eternal redemption earned by your Redeemer. Our catechism catches all this very well with that title, God, the Son, and our redemption. So in other words, the believer's glorious redemption lies in knowing and confessing Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord. That's then the focus this afternoon in God's Word, which I'm going to proclaim to you in this way. Our glorious redemption is in God's only begotten Son, our Lord. We'll see that this redemption is from Him, through Him, and to Him. So First, we see that this redemption is from Him. We need to know what the Bible means when it calls Christ God's only begotten Son. I think of Jesus' own words in John 3, verse 16, for example. It depends on what translation you have. The ESV says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. But if you have a new King James, which we do here, you read instead, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Which at the end of the day is the better translation. For Scripture teaches us, after all, that our Savior is not God's only Son. What comes to mind, for example, is the genealogy at the end of Luke 3. Luke begins the record with Jesus, son of Joseph, and he goes all the way back to the beginning to Adam, son of God, it says. So it's that word, begotten that tells us how Christ is a different son. To attempt to understand its meaning, we need to consider the family unit. In families, there are two ways in which we receive children. The more common is that children are born into the family. Less commonly, parents adopt a child sometimes you find that those families with adopted children also have children born into the family and with respect to the children born into the family we consider them to be begotten by their parents the verb beget means to father a child now it certainly happens that adopted children can take on some of the traits and characteristics of their parents. They observe and they imitate. But it's only the natural children that can physically image their parents and take on characteristics that we say are in the genes. Now, on one level, this starts to clear up the logical confusion that we raise in question 33. Why is he, Christ Jesus, called God's only begotten son, since we also are children of God? That phrase, only begotten, puts God's family into our minds and tells us that while God has more than one child, he has innumerable sons and daughters, there is only one who alone is God's natural son. Still, at another level, this begs some more questions. If beget means to father or to bring forth a child, did Christ then become son of God? Was there a time when he did not exist, was not the son? Did the father have to create his son? We know the answer to that. So perhaps you might like our creed today to use a different, more modern word than begotten. That might, might clear up any confusion. Maybe we should change it to God's unique son. That way we get away from the whole discussion on God bringing forth the son. <coughs> well, the truth of the matter, brothers and sisters, is that we would lose something if we did this. It's for good reason that the church throughout the centuries has maintained the use of the term only begotten. It illustrates to you and me, the glorious relationship of the son to his heavenly father. God is not a father to his son, the son, just as man is father to his son. Son of God never came into being, Rather, Christ has an eternal sonship. No one is like that, like him in that respect. And as human parents beget their nature to their natural human children, so God the Father begets his nature to his Son. So that term begotten not only emphasizes that Christ is God's only natural Son, Natural. It also emphasizes the natureness, the likeness between Father and Son. Of all God's children, only His begotten Son is eternal and natural Son of God. In other words, like true Father, like true Son. As we or rather I should say differently, like Father true God, like Son true God. As we confess in the Apostle Nicene Creed rather, Christ is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father. And that means that whatever attributes Characteristics apply to God the Father, also apply to Christ. He is in very nature God. Paul writes that way in 2 Corinthians, uh, Philippians 2, verse 6, rather. And God's nature and attributes are summarized for you and me in the Belgian Confession, Article 1. There we confess that God is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. All of those attributes, those perfections, are true, not just of God the Father, but also of God the Son. As God's only begotten Son, Christ is true God in every which way. And that sets him apart from us, adopted children. We will never share in the divinity of Christ. We remain human beings for all of eternity. And so, by this eternal and natural sonship, Christ enjoys similarities with the Father as the only begotten Son of God. Brothers and sisters, Our salvation stands or falls with this very truth. For if the Lord Jesus is not God's only begotten Son, that he cannot be our Savior. It's because of his relationship to his Father that he's able to save us from our sins. Our redemption is from him because he is our God. It's only we confess by the power of his divine nature that he could bear in his human nature the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race and thereby redeem us. No child conceived by father and mother could do all that. We have to confess who our Savior is as our God from whom comes our redemption. And we have to know, brothers and sisters, what, that, what our confession means. For we have people knocking on our doors who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. We want to give them the truth of our faith, the truth of the scriptures for the sake of their redemption. They deny what scripture says about Christ Jesus. Mormons say, Jesus is divine, but only in a derivative sense, a derived sense. He's not the eternal or the natural son of God. Rather, he derived, he inherited powers of divinity from his father. That's not true. It's not what the catechism, nor the creed, nor the scriptures say or mean when they call Christ God's only begotten son. Instead, they all say the same jesus is the eternal and the natural son of god we read from the gospel according to john john repeatedly shows in his writings that jesus is god's only begotten son that's really the focus of his whole gospel account actually that salvation is ours only when we confess christ as the eternal natural son of god it's already there in the prologue very first words In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now that Jehovah's Witnesses have changed this verse in their Bible, they have to, because the clear teaching of this passage is that Jesus is God, something they deny. And they make a whole translation issue out of it, which really doesn't hold any water. And then at the end of John, John 20, verse 31, we read, And these things, his whole gospel account, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The name, the confession of God's only begotten Son, is what gives you life. That's what the Bible says. We read from John 5, where Jesus himself makes the claim. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he's committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, In other words, the one who doesn't revere me, honor me, believe me, doesn't honor the Father who sent me, with whom I share identity. What we owe to the Father, we owe to the Son just as well. We have to believe this. For after explaining just who he is, Christ then says in John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word, that is he who gives heed to my teaching about who I am and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Hearing the voice of the Son of God, heeding that voice is essential. There is life, there is salvation for those who hear and who heed and confess, because that voice is the very voice of God himself, Christ is the natural, eternal Son of God who can claim divine power and authority. He has what is needed to redeem us, to raise us from the dead and give us life because he's God. Our redemption comes from him, God's only begotten Son. And at the same time, Christ's Sonship also has meaning for our Sonship. That's our second point where we see that our redemption is through him. The answer in the Catechism, rather, in Answer 33 immediately connects the Sonship of Christ to the Sonship of believers. Our relationship with the Father is dependent upon Christ's Sonship. We confess that we are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Through Christ's redeeming work are we restored in our relationship with the Father. Through grace in Christ we are set apart as God's children, dearly loved and precious to him. That means, wonder of wonders, that in many respects, God is pleased to look upon us in the same way that He looks upon His only begotten Son. Even though Christ is eternal and natural and we are adopted, that makes no difference in Father's eyes. That's how it ought to be in a human family. Parents may not have favorites in how they look upon their children. All are to be regarded equally as sons and daughters, natural or adopted. It's the same way with the Lord. We receive all the rights as God's children. We are treated exactly as Christ himself, as God's natural child, our elder brother. We have redemption through that brother. Oh, how precious and how comforting is our confession when it mentions that word, adoption, that stands for the truth of God's grace towards us. For we know full well what all happened in paradise. Because of Adam's sin, we are by nature children of wrath, by nature We're not God's children, whereas Christ, by nature, is God's son. We sinned. We lost that title, sons of God. We no longer bore God's image. Instead, we bore the image of Satan. We became children of the devil. John 8, verse 44. Well, the only way, therefore, by which we may be made children of God is by adoption. A reading from Galatians makes this very clear. Paul reminds us of what we were in our unregenerate state. Chapter 4, verse 3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. We forfeited our rights as children of God. Then a transformation happened, Christmas. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ came to pay the price for our sins in order to restore us to the position of sons. To turn us from a bunch of rebellious nobodies into a family of somebodies, by grace. From enemies of God into children of God. For Christ's sake, we are adopted. We are once again given the position of image bearers, renewed. Yes, so true is this that the scriptures even speak about believers as those who are born of God. 1 John 3 verse 9. Believers are reborn through the power of the Holy Spirit, through grace, for Christ's sake. What Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. God himself has come to our rescue and made us his own. In his grace, he saw us as children of the devil and he saw how helpless and how hopeless we were that we really were enslaved orphans. The devil doesn't look after his children in any loving way whatsoever because he himself is so full of hatred. So God in his grace plucked us from Satan's hand with only Otherwise, a wretched future to look forward to. People who had only the suffocating stench of eternal death to anticipate, and He's adopted us for Himself, to take us into His care. That's God's wonderful grace. His wrath has been turned away from, away from us because of the death of His Son, so that we might be reconciled to God restored to him, and made his sons. And as his sons, we are led by his Spirit to act more and more as sons of God in the family of God. Our redemption truly comes through Christ and brings all sorts of precious wealth with it consider just our status. Before, we were slaves to sin, but now we've been made sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Our adoption has brought us into a new legal, brought us a new legal standing. Because Christ was the obedient son, for his sake, as we confess, many privileges are granted to me A sinful child, as if I myself had rendered all the obedience which Christ has done for me. And the one adopted by God as his child receives all the rights of Christ, God's own Son. All that is his is ours. Same father, same righteousness, same eternal prospects. for by faith in Christ. We know we share not only in his benefits in this life, in this life, but also in the life to come. God's children who live by faith have a marvelous uh, future to look forward to. Galatians 4, verse 7, Paul writes that since we are God's adopted children, our status is not even only as sons, but also heirs. God, an heir is someone who inherits something. Our Heavenly Father has a glorious inheritance in store for us. God promises everlasting life to his children. And by faith, we may look forward to living with Christ on the new earth. That's the wonderful, privileged inheritance in store for all who are truly children of God. That indeed, how wealthy are God's adopted children and what riches we may look forward to as we receive, as we are heirs to God's promises by faith in Christ. So we come to our final point where we see redemption is to Christ. Well, with the last name ascribed to our redeemer, we seem to run into another problem with logic. First, it was the fact that Christ is God's only begotten son and we also are children of God. Well, now there might be a struggle between the fact that we are God's sons, that we also call Christ our Lord. The word Lord implies slavery. So, are we conf- so we are confessing that Christ has rights over us, and that can be confusing since it seems to run contrary to what we read in Galatians 4 verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. So what do, we do- what do we now do in our confession when our confession speaks as though we are slaves? Well, this doesn't, of course, go over well today even in Christian circles. We shouldn't be making this confession. I am my own master. How can I possibly say on the one hand that I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then in the same breath have to call Christ my Lord? How can I call myself a child of God and at the same time a slave of Christ? I shouldn't have to surrender myself to anyone The gospel only calls me to believe. There are those who speak this confession and also live it out. Faith is little more than lip service. This guts the gospel of all its riches. It robs Christ's work of its all-encompassing value. And as Christians, we call this for what it is idolatry, self-worship. For when we confess him as our Lord, we confess good news. It's good news to know him as our Lord, as one we may serve. It's our redemption we are confessing. We call him Lord because as we confess, he has ransomed us, body and soul from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Our glorious redemption is not only from him and through him, but it's also it also brings us to him. Puts us under his lordship. Yes, that's a redemption glorious indeed. Again, we have to think back to how it was. To how it was to serve God. In the beginning, God was our master. We were created to be slaves of God. And in paradise, that wasn't burdensome. God is a very gracious master. He looked out for our well-being. He provided us with everything we needed to do our work to fulfill the tasks he gave us. And those tasks were not burdensome. They were pleasant. It was Good, Very good to be God's slave. Yes, good to be under God's lordship. But we were tempted with so-called freedom. We were told disobey in order that we would be equal to God, knowing good and evil, and we fell for it. We found this so-called freedom appealing. Well, how sadly we were deceived. Rejecting our God didn't lead to freedom at all. It led to bondage. We were sold under sin as slaves to Satan. Satan ruled us as the cruel tyrant who seeks to destroy all those who come under his power. It's this that we need to be reminded of to help us see why confessing Christ's lordship is such good news is essential even for our life, because the only other option is a horrendously nasty one. You serve Christ or you serve Satan. The one has the power to ransom and free your life, body and soul. The other one has the power to ravage and destroy your life body and soul. So it's not a burden to serve Christ as our Lord. It's not slavery. No, our salvation and life of service isn't costly to us. Our way to heaven has been paid for. Christ did that. Did that. Serving him now is not slavery. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul writes later in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Serving ourselves, doing what we want, isn't freedom because we will never be satisfied with ourselves, never find full satisfaction with our work. Serving Christ, rather, is freedom. He has redeemed our lives. So we give our lives to Him. Redemption brings just that kind of freedom. I think we need to remember how costly our salvation, Christ's Lordship was for him. How did he become our Lord? By paying for all of our sins with his precious blood. That's what it took. In the Old Testament, someone became Lord over a slave by buying him on the slave market. Now, that slave could eventually buy his own freedom, or members of the family had the responsibility to buy him out, if that were at all possible, so that he could live in freedom before God. But as far as sinners before the face of God, no amount of money, silver or gold could do the trick. Ransom money was out of the question. God's justice demanded that sin be redeemed by bloodshed. And that's what God's Son did. He entered into death for us. He shed his precious blood and precious in our confession means costly. You were ransomed at a costly price because souls, your soul is costly. Every human being, no matter how far they have fallen, still bears the imprint of God being created in God's image. Christ gave his life to be our Lord. He purchased our bodies with a commodity far more precious than stocks or bonds. He redeemed our lives by loving us enough to lose his own life. And God exalted him to the highest place so that every tongue might confess Christ is Lord, Philippians 2. So do you see what joy we may have in being slaves to this one who ransomed us from the clutches of hell? He became a servant to become our Lord. What wealth, riches his lordship means for us we gladly surrender our rights to Him. Brothers and sisters, Christ has a very special status as God's Son and our Lord. It's what fills you and me with great comfort, the comfort we heard of this morning, both in life and in death. Our identity lies in our Redeemer. We depend upon Him to present us to the Father as sons and daughters, and we depend upon him to protect us from the devil and to give us life, abundant life already now. So in him, in Christ, every way imaginable, we find our glorious redemption. So live as blessed children and heirs, and slaves by the grace that is yours in christ for from him as our god and through him as our brother and to him as our lord are all things to him be all glory forever amen